Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. We want to read about this king that we have been singing about. Matthew's Gospel, the 25th chapter, reading from verse 31 to verse 46. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of God. Let us pray together. Our Father, we do bless you that we are found in this place this morning, that we are here not simply because of our will or desire, but that you have brought us to this place. You are the God who has put it into our mind and laid it on our hearts and directed our steps to this place. For, O oh God, in your mercy and grace, you have something to say to us this day. You've put it in our hearts and minds to come and worship you, to bring our prayers before you, to enter your courts with thanksgiving, and yet to come and be silent and know that you and you alone are God. The God of the living, the God who does wondrous things, the God who holds this world in his hands, the God who sustains all things, the God of might and majesty, but the God who works in the lives of people, transforming, changing, preparing for an eternity with yourself. We thank you, our Father, that you brought us here that we might learn of you, that we might grow in the knowledge of you, that we might experience more of your mercy and grace. And Father, while we are here, we are aware that there are others who cannot be with us this morning, and we remember them. Father, some of our members are sick. They need your strength. They need your healing touch. They need to hear that life-giving word. And therefore, our Father, we commend them to you. You know each one of them. You know what ails them. You know what confronts them. You know the challenges that they face. But we pray, draw near to them, O God, and sustain their hearts and quiet their minds and grant them a great measure of your peace. Now, Father, again, for those who are grieving, lost loved ones, maybe they've lost their job in a new environment, a new situation, facing a new challenge, something they've never had to confront or deal with before. Come to them, O God, in your might. Come to them, O God, and equip them with everything good for doing your will. Grant that this may be a time when they grow in you, when, as it were, circumstances force them to flee to you. Oh, Father, how blessed we are that you do employ these things, that we might lean more heavily upon you and find you to be the faithful God. And so we commend these sorrowful ones to you that may, may know your presence, your peace, your comfort. And our Father, we pray for those in authority over us, for you have told us to do so. And we ask for our leaders, whether it's federal or local, 
Father, we just pray, have mercy upon us, O God. We pray, O Father, those who would seek to lead us may again, O Father, if never before, become aware of their creatureliness. Be aware that one day they will have to stand and give account, not simply to the voters, but to the high king of heaven, the one who is holy, holy, holy. We pray, our Father, have mercy upon us as a nation. Grant to us, our Father, a, a people of leadership who would fear the true and living God and lead us in the path of righteousness. We pray for our world amidst its toil and trouble, amidst its wars. Our Father, we pray that yet the gospel might run with power and the gospel might run with clarity. And even in the midst of great danger, you would yet preserve your people in safety and cause that in the midst of such difficulties, in the midst of, our Father, such darkness, where the hearts of men and women would fail them, they may yet turn to the one who is the rock of ages. Father, we come with our prayers. We come, our Father, with our petitions. And we come with our confession. And Father, we have sinned against you since we last met together. We have not loved you with all of our hearts. We have not sought your word as we ought. We have not walked humbly before you. We've said something, we've thought something, we've done that which has been displeasing to you. Pardon us, we pray of you, our Father. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we ask of you. And open our eyes now, that we may see no one save Jesus. Hear us, help us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shortly after becoming my wife, Christine also became a British citizen. So for the past 53 years, like myself, Christine has had dual citizenship. So why did she become a British citizen? Well, I had traveled back and forth to the UK during the mid-60s and recognized that as far as the United Kingdom was concerned, there are only two groups of people in the world, British passport holders and others. <laughs> These were the only two lines that you would find at immigration, these were the only two lines that you would find in any government agency. And uh, being British myself, I did not want Christine to have to stand alone or to be with others. I wanted her to be with me. And therefore, for us to be together and be no separation, uh, she became a British subject, a British citizen with myself. So what does that have to do with Psalm 23? You have your Bibles, come back with me to that portion of God's word this morning. Psalm 23. Why speak of groups of people, two groups of people? 
Because here in this psalm, we we see, first of all this morning, a, a genuine separation is implied. A genuine separation. You see, while this, this, this psalm has, has proved to be a, a wonderful source of comfort and of succor and of strength to many, many people, especially during times of grief and sadness and loss, in reality, this psalm is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. It is very clearly and very specifically earmarked and applicable to a special group of people. For what do we read? Well, right from the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And you go on to that fourth verse. When I go through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. This this psalm with its promises and pictures applies only to one group of people. The sheep who belong to the good and to the great and to the chief shepherd. And thus, a distinction is being made here. A distinction brought out by Jesus. Because the good shepherd, as recorded by John in John chapter 10, speaks of two groups of people. In verse 14 of that 10th chapter of John, Jesus speaks of my sheep. But then as you read on in the chapter and you come to verse 26, Jesus addresses another group and they are called not my sheep. Two distinct groups of people. And so a a difference is inferred. A division, if you will, seen throughout Scripture and and emphasized by our Lord Jesus himself. For what do we find as we read our Gospels? We read this. Jesus speaks of sheep and goats, wheat and chaff, the righteous and the unrighteous, believers and unbelievers, my sheep, And those who are not my sheep, and in the parable of the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish. And from our reading in Matthew 25, we noted only two classes of people in the coming day of judgment. The sheep and the goats. So the inference is this. There are only two groups of people in our world. There's only two groups of people here this morning in this room. And it's not the British and others. It's my sheep and not my sheep. And so with this 
distinction and with this difference, a description is provided for us. For what marks out my sheep from those who are not my sheep? Well, in, in terms of the, the psalm and, and John 10, my sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know the voice of the shepherd. They respond to the voice of the shepherd. And so they follow the voice of the shepherd. And to put all that into to New Testament language, they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that they have, they have seen and felt themselves as sinners before a holy God and his righteous rule. And in response to that, they have, they have fled for refuge to Jesus Christ, the only mediator between man and God. And they've claimed Christ as their Lord and the scriptures as their guide and the Holy Spirit as their seal, and heaven as their home. And though they sin daily and fall short of his glory, they, by God's loving adoption, remain his children, his sheep, to the delight of God the Son, who laid down his life for them. My sheep believe the gospel. That's what marks them out. For what is true of those who are not my sheep? Well, in John 10 and verse 26, Jesus simply defines them in these words. You do not believe. They dismiss the voice of the shepherd. They disobey the voice of the Savior. And they defame the voice of the sovereign. And thus they are dead to the voice of the spirit. So... Only two sorts of people. My sheep, not my sheep. And I wonder in which group you are in this morning. Sheep, not my sheep. Believing, unbelieving. There is a genuine separation implied. But then I want you to see also this morning that Jesus in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, describes a further distinction and in so doing reveals that a gracious sovereignty is involved. A genuine separation and a gracious sovereignty. Now, in this, this high priestly prayer of our Lord in that 17th chapter, while Jesus does not use the terms, my sheep, 
and not my sheep in his prayer, he does nevertheless refer to two groups of people. That is, the, the, the same and yet different. My uh, Cambodian friends would say, you know, same, same, but, but different. What am I getting at? Well, he doesn't speak of my sheep or not my sheep. He doesn't speak here of wheat and tares and so forth. But he does speak of those who are not of the world. And the reference there is to the believer. On the other hand, there are those who are of this world. And such are unbelievers. In verse 6, his disciples are those given from the world. In verse 9, to quote the words of Jesus, I pray for them. This is his continued high priestly ministry. I pray for them, that is, his people, his disciples. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. And then in verse 14, they, his disciples, are not of the world. So what's involved here? What is Jesus saying here? Well, the glorious truth recorded is this. His sheep belong to God. In verse 6, speaking of the original disciples and those who had followed ever since, Jesus says to the Father, they were yours and you gave them to me. And now they are yours. The, the inference being a believer belongs to almighty God. My sheep, my sheep. We by his grace, if we're within that group of being part of my sheep, we are in that group by his grace as his chosen people. And as his treasured possession and those who are eternally beloved, we were his before this world was ever formed. And how precious are God's sheep to him. The words of Isaiah 49 and verse 16. Behold, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands as an evidence of our preciousness our names my fellow sheep our names are not only recorded in heaven but they are engraven on the very hands of our God and sometimes in order to remember something, and I'm increasingly doing this as the years take their toll, writing things that I need to do or need to remember on slips of paper. And the problem is sometimes I forget where I put the slips of paper. But nonetheless, we, we try to, to use these means. Or if, if in an emergency you're on, the, you're on your telephone and you need to take a number and you grab a pen, you, you write it on your hand so you don't, you don't forget it. But soon... It wears off. 
But your name, my friend, does not wear off from the hand of God. It's engraven on his hand. Listen to the words of Augustus Toplady in his great hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. He simply wrote, My name, from the palms of his hand, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. My sheep, chosen, treasured, precious, loved, known. We belong to God. But in addition to that, his sheep are blessed by his grace. In what way? Well, the Father has entrusted his sheep to the care and well-being of his Son, who saved them by laying down his life for them and rising again for them. So that we, we are blessed by the Son's revelation of the Father to us. For what were his words? So not to Philip and Thomas. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then we are blessed by the Son's satisfaction to the Father for us. For by his death he satisfied the anger of God's wrath for us. And then we are blessed by the Son's intercession before the Father for us. For we are told, are we not in the book of Hebrews, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And by the way, his intercession for us is just as important as his crucifixion for us. Don't separate them. It's all part of his saving work, his priestly work. The high priest had to do two things, offer sacrifice and offer incense prayers. They go together, beloved. We're blessed by the protection by the Father of us. Because in that high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. And we're blessed by the Son's presentation of us to the Father. Behold, here I am, and the children that you have given to me. As my sheep, we belong to God. We are blessed by grace. And thirdly, a gracious sovereign involvement means that we are bound for glory. We are bound for glory. Listen to the Savior's Supplication to the Father in that 17th chapter in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you gave me before, uh, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here, so wonderfully expressed, is, is the heart's desire, my friends, of the high King of heaven, and who does he desire? 
those the Father has given to him, those who are not of this world, those who are his sheep. And what does he desire for them? That they may be with me where I am. Words that uh, surely remind you of John 14, 3. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He wants us to be with him. Why? That they may see my glory. The Son of God desires our company and desires to reveal the splendor of his majesty to us for all eternity. In other words, if I can, can put it in simple language, my friends, his desire is to thrill us. His desire is that we be lost for eternity in wonder and love and in praise. That his people's future his glory being, as it were, his people's gladness. We, as his sheep, are bound for glory. And all that, belonging to him, being blessed by him and bound to glory, all that is by his sovereign involvement, his sovereign grace, his sovereign will, and his sovereign choice. Now, while joyous splendor and endless delights await in the future, the my sheep, what awaits those who are not my sheep? Well, from a genuine separation, and a gracious sovereignty. Let me say finally something about a grievous sentence which is indicated here. And what is the grievous sentence? Depart from me. My friends, the good, the great, and the chief shepherd brings us all face to face with eternity. Because the fact is, my friends, each one of us, every one of us in this room today, we are going to live somewhere forever. 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 And so the question is, where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? If, if you were to die this afternoon, what would be your destination? Where would you go? You see, for the my sheep, John 10 and Psalm 23, the answer most assuredly is, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But what of those who are not my sheep? Matthew 25, verse 41, depart from me. And verse 46, these terrible words, 
Go away. Go away. Go away into eternal punishment. Jesus here is speaking, as it were, of banishment. The endless end of the lost. Because you see, my friends, as there are about two groups of people in the world, there are only two places in eternity. Heaven or hell. And although there are protestations over hell's existence and endurance, it is with irrefutable clarity that Jesus himself, who preached more about hell than he did anything else, spoke of hell as being a real place and a real place to be avoided at all costs, a real place of endless separation from all that which is good and from all that which is pure and all that which is lovely and all that which is satisfying. A real place of, of darkness and unhindered depravity but the only sound being that of weeping and wailing. And tragically, we may add this. Hell is what a multitude of people have hungered for and lived for. Because they are living all their lives and all they want in life is for God and religious people to leave them alone. They don't want a bar of it. They want to live their lives. They want to determine what they do. They want to determine where they go. They do not want any bounds whatsoever. And you read of them in Romans 1 and you hear those dreadful words. And God gave them up. God gave them up to what they wanted. Hell is their dream come true. For in hell, they will not be bothered by the morality of God's law or the spirituality of his worship or the sense of his gracious presence. They will be without God. And that's terrible. Because even our world today is still controlled by our God and there is still mercy and grace. There is still kindness and love and thoughtfulness and gentleness at times. Someone put it like this. Hell will be sin without the fun of sinning. Why do people end up in hell? Because they have lived their lives without God in this world. Be they the nasty or the nice, be they the good person or the bad, be they a prince or a pauper, be they an intellectual or an ignorant, be they young or old, be they ordinary people or extraordinary people, 
It might be the person that you work with. It may be the person that you go running with in the morning. It may be the person that you meet at the school gate while you wait for your children. It may be the very person you are sitting beside in this room. You see, my friends, you may have raised your hand at some meeting at some stage. You may have gone forward at some convention. You may have joined a church. You may have even been baptized. But listen, I'm not interested in what you've done. I want to know what God has done in your life. I want to know how God has transformed you. Not what you've done. Salvation is of the Lord. Okay. What's your testimony about what God has done in transforming your heart and desires and will? That's the important thing. Why do people end up in hell? Because, again, to quote, they have gambled their lives on the powerlessness of God to call them to account. Why do people end up in hell? Martin Luther once said, Many are lost because they cannot use possessive pronouns. That is, they cannot say with the Apostle Paul, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And so, my friends, there's only one question remaining. How can you escape the horrors of hell and enjoy the happiness of heaven. Everything the Bible says on the subject can be summed up in these words that most of you would know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have spoke of banishment. What's the key word in John 3.16? It's the word believes, believes. And what is John referring to here? What does it mean? Well, let me, let me explain it this way. Um, let me be a bit cheeky. How many of you believe in me? In other words, when you leave this morning, would you entrust to me your credit card and your PIN number? Okay, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but uh, how many of you believe in me that you would be happy to give me your credit card and your PIN number? Okay. Another question. How many of you believe that I exist? How many of you believe that, that I am really here? You're not seeing a ghost. You see, believing that and believing in are two totally different things. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believing that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is not enough. 
You can believe that is true, but believing a historic fact alone is not the faith that saves. The devil believes that. You must believe in him, and that means trusting yourself to him, obeying him, leaning on him, committing yourself to him, knowing that, yes, indeed, he is real. To believe in him is to hear and heed the shepherd's call to come to him. To know that in Jesus Christ there is a fullness of grace for all who will come. And indeed a freeness of grace. Because there are no conditions that one must meet in order for the gospel to be received. This is the wonderful thing, beloved. God's grace is rich and free. It's not conditional. God doesn't say, if you do this, then I will do that. Oh, yes, there is a requirement. Some of you will be thinking, what about repentance? Yes, repentance is the fruit of grace. It's not the qualification for grace. All the blessings, all the benefits of the gospel, justification, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, they're all ours in Christ. In Christ alone. So have you believed in him? And John 3.16 just doesn't say believe once. It's a continuous thing. Keep on believing. Are you still believing in him? Are you my sheep? Or is it not my sheep? If that's true of you this morning... My dear friend, I warn you, I urge you, I invite you to turn to him. In the words of the hymn writer Joseph Hart, venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. So what group is it? No worry whether you're British or other. But I'm concerned to know whether you are in the group that is my sheep or not my sheep. And so my final question as I close is this. Where do you go from here? Where do you go from here into eternity? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that nothing is hidden from you. You know each one of us in this room. You know our histories. You know everything about us that we're all sinned and come short of your glory. But we thank you that you let it be known to us that your grace is amazing and your love is strong and your voice is clear. And that you'd say to each of us, come, come believing, 
come out from this world. Come and lean on heaven's beloved Son and know pardon and peace with God. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen with expectancy for the glory of your own great name. Amen.